Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Doing all right? Still going? I'm glad you could make it. I'm glad the tennis finished so that you could make it. You don't need to apologize for that. So um, I'm Aaron. I'm part of the staff team here. Most, most weeks of the year, if you were to be here on any given Sunday, you'd probably find a big guy called Carl stood up at the front here. Well, he's on holiday, so you've come on the right week because this week you get me. And that's a good thing, I think. Thanks. Wow. I'm overwhelmed already. Thank you so much. And, um, and uh, this passage doesn't really need introducing, so I'm just going to begin to read. It's... Um, 1 Samuel 17, if you can, if you can, got a Bible, if you want to follow along. We're going to be starting a new series tonight, but I thought I'd just introduce it by reading our passage for this evening. It's, it's a quite a long one, um, but I mean, I, you don't have to read it, you can just listen. So hopefully you can enjoy hearing the story again, which I'm sure you've heard before. It's the story of David and Goliath. And so 1 Samuel 17 from verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war. And assembled at Socho in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Socho and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. 
He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, And with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. This is the good bit. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming close to David. He only looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said. And I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. 
Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Some serious trash talk. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Hooray. Hooray. We're beginning tonight a new series called, we've called it How to Kill Giants and Influence People. Based on Dale Carnegie's self-help book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's really about looking from the life of David, which we'll do for the next month or so on Sundays. How do we overcome obstacles? How does David do it? What might we learn from his example? And, And what particularly... What particularly do we learn about influence as well? About how David lives a life of influence. And so as we're doing David and Goliath tonight, the emphasis will be mainly on killing giants. I wonder if um, you could turn to the person next to you. I'm going to make you do this, so I don't know why I asked, but can you turn to the person next to you? And maybe you need to introduce yourself if you haven't already and say hello, you know, formality, small talk. But, and then ask them this question. What's the riskiest thing you've ever done? If you're lurking at the back, please come and find a seat or find someone to talk to if you're on your own. Great. Thank you very much. So, on, on balance, based on what the person next to you just told you, I'll give you a minute to think about this, based on what the person next to you just told you, if you think the person next to you is a riskier person than you are, can you put your hand up? Okay. Great. Quite a lot of people sat next to one another are both putting their hands up. So clearly been like... Well, you are. Okay. There's, um, there's, a guy, there's a guy called Caleb Meakin. In fact, I, I was learning about this guy because I was sat at my desk earlier this week and Kira, our lovely student worker, was, was sat opposite me. She's just at the back over there looking slightly embarrassed now, but she was giggling. She had headphones in and she started giggling. 
So I asked her what she was giggling about, and it was, it was this, and it, it's this guy called Caleb Meakin who, who's done a thing called My 40 Days. I don't know if you've heard of it. He, he set out to, to, every day for 40 days to undertake a challenge that would help him to stretch his own personal boundaries, that would help him to stretch and figure out how he would live a life of risk. This guy's a young uh, business guy and was looking for, actually, if I'm going to live in business, if I'm going to live a life of faith as well, I need to learn how to take steps of risk. And so to give you some examples of the kind of things that he did, he, um, he played the game Guess Who? Have you played the game Guess Who? When you walk up behind someone that you know and you put your hands over their eyes and you say, Guess Who? You ever played that before? Some of you have. Well, he did that, but did it with complete strangers, <laughs> knowing that they were complete strangers. And obviously they sit there kind of like, oh, I can't, this is so awkward, I can't guess who this person is who clearly knows me so well that they're playing this game with me. And then he takes his hands away and steps back and goes like that. And they go, I don't know who you are. What are you doing? Why have you been holding my face like that? He went into, um, he went into McDonald's with a two kilogram frozen chicken and took it up to the counter and said, how much for a chicken burger? And expecting that they were going to make him a chicken burger there and there from his frozen turkey. He went to King's College London and began a lecture. He worked out that, that it took a certain amount of time for the lecturer who was coming to this particular class to get across the campus. So he got up and began giving the lecture before the lecturer arrived to give the lecture to a bunch of neuroscience students who, of which he knew nothing about at all. At one point, the, the lecturer actually comes in and he says, oh, all right, darling, do you want to take a seat? You're running a bit late. He says in his own words, by taking on these challenges that are deemed entirely unachievable and socially awkward, I will learn to come out of my comfort zone, think outside the box, and take risks as I attempt to successfully achieve each day's challenge. There's actually a medical condition called atikiphobia, which is the fear of risk. It's actually the fear of risk to the point of immobility, in that you can't live a functional life because you're so afraid of of fear, of failure, of rejection, that you might not even leave your own home for fear of what's outside and the risk that that could be to you. People who have this condition struggle to live a life of meaning and presumably struggle to ever really reach their full potential. I don't know how you feel about risk. If there was a kind of spectrum from thrill seeker, adrenaline junkie, I love risk, to all the way over here, totally risk aversive, hate being out of my comfort zone, I want to hide, I just want to live over here, leave me alone in my own little bubble. I wonder why you put yourself on that spectrum. Because actually, our relationship with risk, and certainly our ability to overcome obstacles, matters. It especially matters when, when what we're called to is to live a life of faith. I mean, I'm not saying that we need to all become adrenaline junkies. Absolutely not. We don't all have to become thrill seekers. But there is something, something almost inherent about living a life of faith that is risky. Think of those first disciples, the fishermen, in their boats, tending their nets, doing their day job. And Jesus arrives and says, give up your pr profession and come and follow me. And they do. That was a risky thing to do, wasn't it? They just drop their nets and follow him because he, he asks them to. That's, that's certainly a high-risk strategy. 
And so as we look at the story of David tonight and in the coming weeks, my question for us is, what are your giants and what is your next step of faith? What are your giants and what is your next step of faith? As you look at your life, what's your next step of faith? Maybe, maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's having faith for a new job, that, that you, you can do it, that you're good enough, that you can do that new thing. Maybe it's for health. Maybe it's for someone that you care about. Maybe it's for yourself and for healing. It's having faith that you'll come through. Maybe it's, maybe it's your finances. Having faith that somehow the money will arrive. Somehow we'll get through this patch. Maybe it's, maybe it's for your children, for protection, for your family, for those you care about. Maybe, and maybe especially in this room, it's about our future, about our plans. Do we have faith for the next step? Do we have faith when we can't always see what's coming next? Well, David, David tells us something of the story of what happens when an ordinary person faces up against the giant. So there are these two valleys, that's what the story tells us. They're pretty significant, actually. The position of them in terms of the region that they're in means that this is a real kind of key stronghold for either side to win the battle. They're they're on two sides of a valley, and there's a kind of ditch, a ravine in the middle. And they're stuck at a stalemate because although they're they're kind of evenly matched armies, both on each battle line, to, to approach the other would be suicide because it would mean not only going down your side of the valley, but it would mean then fighting uphill against the enemy on the other side of the valley. And fighting uphill, especially when you're trying to climb up, would be a really difficult and foolish thing to do. And so they're stuck. Both sides camped on either side of a valley. And we maybe know it from some of the films we've seen or um, history books that we've read, that often what might happen, maybe the cliche thing that might happen in this situation is each side sends forth a champion And then the champions will fight it out, and the winner of that will decide who wins the battle. Goliath spells it out for the Israelites. If we win, then you have to become our subjects. But if you win, then we'll become yours. That's the way it's going to be. There's actually a famous famous historical document of this, a, a Gaul warrior. It's also in the film Troy, but I'm not sure how historically accurate that is with Brad Pitt. But, um, which is awesome, by the way, but... Beside the point, a Gaul warrior who calls forward the Romans. He, he stands, he's, he's sort of, his battle line is on one side of the river, the Romans are on the other, and there's a bridge between the two. And so he goes onto the bridge and he calls out and says, come on Rome, what have you got? Send your best champion down here. And so the Roman champion, a guy called Titus Manlius, which is probably the best Roman warrior name ever, called my son Titus Manlius Elder, I think, Titus Manlius comes forward on behalf of the, of the, to defend the honor of Rome. And he stands and he fights and they stand and they, and they fight with sword and shield and to the death. And the Roman, Titus Manlius, wins. And he slays his opponent on the bridge and he cuts off his head. And the history books tell us that he then cuts out his tongue and wears it as a medallion around his neck, bloody as it is. Gross. But that's what Goliath is expecting here. He's expecting hand-to-hand single combat. Goliath is the champion, which literally means their first infantryman. He's their best foot soldier. 
He's their best man on the ground, their best man in hand-to-hand combat. And Goliath's armor is heavy. Weighs about 60 kilograms, just the kind of chainmail that he wears. His weapons are designed for cutting down an opponent at close proximity. He even says on more than one occasion, come to me. He says, come over here and I'll get you. I think he says that because he's not particularly mobile. Imagine carrying all that stuff and wearing all that armor. Come to me, he says, because I can't come to you. But if you come over here, I'll get you. In the wars at this time, there were kind of, this is a massive generalization, but there were kind of three elements to the military. There's the infantry, there's the cavalry, and there's the artillery. So the infantry is like Goliath, he's a foot soldier. And then there's the cavalry, the men on horses, call the cavalry. And then there's the artillery, which is the archers, the men who can stay at a distance but still get you, the kind of long-range experts. And, And Goliath is expecting infantry to infantry, man to man, foot soldier to foot soldier, sword and shield. But we know from the story that David completely defies those expectations. Because you see, he comes against Goliath not in toe-to-toe, hand-to-hand combat, but with a sling. He chooses artillery, a range weapon. A ballistics expert with the Israeli Defense Forces worked out though the power and the force and the accuracy of someone who could use a sling. And he worked out that an expert slinger can throw a pebble, a stone, and can, with great accuracy, throw it at about a rate of 34 meters a second. So if David was 34 meters away and threw it, it would take a second to get from his sling to Goliath's forehead. That's enough force to kill a man. And that that changes things, doesn't it? See, with that change of perspective, Goliath goes from being an unbeatable enemy to a big sitting target, doesn't he? See, if David fights Goliath on on Goliath's terms, if he does the expected thing, then he loses, surely. But David doesn't do that. David changes his perspective. See, he thinks outside of the box, and he doesn't play by the rules. What does he have to lose? In a word, he risks. He risks. See, David not only defies the expectations of the fight and the way that he's to go about this, but, but he actually refuses to, to be labeled by the expectations that others have. These are some of the things that people say to him in this passage you read. The king says, you can't do it. You are not able to go out and fight him. You are little more than a boy, and he has been a warrior from his youth. His own brother, David's eldest brother, Eliab, says to him, what are you doing here? He's quite mean, isn't he? I know your heart is conceited. Go home. Most of us, I think, most of us would be affected by that, wouldn't we? We might be limited by that. We might think, oh, maybe I can't. If I have to persuade the king to let me fight, then maybe I'm not up to this. If my own brother just wants to send me home, then maybe I should just go home. I mean, there were thousands upon thousands of men on the Israelite line. And they were all terrified to move. Terrified to move. And that's what's so remarkable about this this teenager, David, who steps forward. He says, I'll do it. I'll fight him. I'll take the step of faith. 
I'll be the one who believes that he can beat Goliath. You know, in terms of influence, and we'll think more about that in the coming weeks, but in terms of influence, look at the way that David influences a nation with a single action. He just says, I'll do it. Look at how profoundly that changes the story. Why? How? How does this this teenage boy do this? Is he crazy? Does he have no fear at all? I don't think so. I think it's simple. I think that he's, he's stopped listening to the voices around him and he's started listening to the voice of God. I think that's what's happening here. Because you see, in the previous chapter, David has received an anointing from the prophet Samuel. So in, in 1 Samuel 16, the chapter just before, Samuel the prophet has been told by God to go and to, to choose a successor. The king who's called Saul, who leads the Israelite army at this point, one, one day he's going to be replaced and Samuel is to go into pray a kind of anointing on the successor. He's going to pick him out. And he narrows it down and he realizes it's one of Jesse's sons. And so he goes and he finds, finds the sons. He finds those three brothers who, who are mentioned in the passage. And then in, in 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read this. Speaking about Eliab, the eldest brother. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then he works his way down the list of the brothers. Not that one, not that one, and gets to the end. And he's like, is that all the sons you have? And he said, well, we've got one more son, but surely it can't be him. And of course it is. And so they call in David. And Samuel prays this anointing on David, the youngest son. See, it's David's courage. It's his faith that wins him the the victory. It's not his appearance, his height, his size, his muscle. It's his heart. You see, he refuses to be limited. He refuses to hear no from anyone. It reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from George Bernard Shaw. He wrote that, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. I love that quote. I love it because I'm naturally quite disagreeable, I think. Quite contrary, quite, quite kind of wanting to go against the kind of conventional view of things. And, and so often fear comes from expectation. Expectation or limitations placed on us. And it, it's subtle, but it doesn't come from God. We can so often be limited because we're afraid what people will think, can't we? We allow the fear of rejection to limit us. Maybe that's the thing that's been holding us back. Maybe that's what we recognize. Actually, you know, that next step of faith, that risk I might take, well, no, because what will they think? What about that? Perhaps it's something that you've been told. You can't do that. You're too young, you're too old. You're not good at that. You'll never be that. Or maybe it's they can't be healed. Or you don't have anything to offer. Or you can't hear from God. Or I'm not good enough for that. If we can just silence those voices just for a minute. What does, what does God say? What are his expectations? Well, Jesus said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
easy and light. His expectations do not limit or pressurize or condemn. In fact, he says that you are right with God. He says you are forgiven and blameless. He says you are accepted and not condemned. That you are loved by a God who has chosen you. And that you are called to be part of his plans. See, that's, that's the kind of change of perspective that can really reshape the odds. And it, it, this, this might seem obvious, but, but the more that we have, the more we have to lose. Maintaining things, holding on, trying to build our own reputation prevents us from living a life of risk, prevents us from taking perhaps the next step of faith that God might be leading us to take. I think it's a question of glory. So often our fear and the, and the blockage which prevents us living, from, living a life of faith comes from the location of our glory. See, Goliath's glory, that was located in his sword and in his spear, in his muscle. That's where his glory was located. If you were to ask someone looking into his life, what's, where does his life find meaning? Or what's he living for? You would look at it and think, well, he's, he's in the gym all day. He's like nine foot tall. He's, he spends all his time practicing his sword skills. His, his, his life, his meaning is in his, his skill with a sword. His, his purpose, his meaning, his glory is located in his, his champion. His nature is the first infantryman. But David's, well, David's glory was located in his God. He says, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. This isn't David saying, bring it on, Goliath. I'm going to take you down, son. It's not what he says. But he would have said it like that if he was going to say it like that. In fact, he says, I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. He fights for the name of the Lord. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. God will do it. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Whose glory is this for? It's for God's. We can see it, can't we? He's not doing it for himself. And yet we so often make the mistake of making it about about me, about us, my glory. My, my glory is located in my ability, my success, my, my business, my reputation, the achievement of, of my family. The list goes on. If you were to look into our lives, you'd say, oh, that right there, that's, that's, that's their meaning. That's what they live for. That's where their glory is located. And it's a very fragile position to be in. It's a fragile position that would, would stop us risking because we have to maintain it, don't we? We're responsible for it. It leads to striving, to clutching, to inward-facing, risk-aversive, faith-limiting postures. Because if I put something on the line, well, that's, that's my glory at stake. That'll look bad for me. It's the fear of losing face. It's the same fear that I'm sure keeps those thousands of Israelite men glued to the battle line. None of them daring to take a step forward, even though Goliath calls them out. So, so what if our glory is instead located in God? 
Well, at a later stage in, in David's life, he, he comes back to this point. In, in Psalm 3, he writes, you know, this guy, he, he's amazing at fighting. He kills Goliath. He wrestles animals and kills them with his bare hands. And he's an amazing songwriter. Just hate that guy, don't you? In Psalm 3, David writes this. At this point, he's, he's become king. It's happened. And yet he finds himself in a familiar situation. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Sounds pretty familiar. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. Yet again, everyone is saying, God will not deliver him. And defiantly, he says, my glory is in the Lord. That's where my glory is. He's the one who lifts my head high. Literally, he's the one who gives me a chin up. He's the one who says, hold your head high. He's the one who gives me my pride. It's in him. And so I don't care what those other people say. Because my glory is located in him. He is my pride. And it's a freeing thing. Because now that his glory, now that his pride located in God's glory and not his own, well then he's got nothing to prove. He's got nothing to earn. He's got nothing to protect because it's not his reputation on the line. See, if we're weighed down by pressure, by anxiety, by expectation, if that would stop us living a life of faith, if that would stop us risking as God might call us to risk, then maybe we need to relocate our identity in God. Am I living in fullness and freedom, knowing that he is my glory, or instead am I fighting for my own glory? There comes a point in the story where David takes the step of faith. There comes a point, I think, for each of us where we're faced with that choice to choose to approach our giants, whatever they may be, to step down into the valley. I don't know what your next step of faith is. It might be a big thing. could be a decision to be made. Could be a, could be a small thing. could be a, an everyday choice you might have to make. Maybe it's choosing to initiate forgiveness. Maybe it's sharing your dreams with, with others. Or maybe it's trying to bring change. All of those things, all of those things require exposing ourselves and making ourselves vulnerable, don't they? There was an experiment carried out with children, two groups of children. There were surveys taken and they found two very, very different groups of children. These are kind of high school age kids. And on one end was the the thrill-seeking, adrenaline junkies, we will take the risks when they come group of kids. And on the other side, well, you can guess, they were the kids who who were were terrified of of change, of coming out of their comfort zones, of risk. And so they got these two, they wanted to conduct an experiment, and they give them the same conditions. And and really simply, they just gave each child a basketball and told them to go and play on the basketball court. And two very, very different things happened. With a small group of people watching on, the group of kids who would take risks just ran around, just ran around and bounced the ball and took shots from all over the place. And some they scored and some they missed, and they had a great time. And and then the second group, they sent the second group on and, and a really unusual thing happened. 
They, they did one of two things, or they did both of these things. They, they went really, really close to the basket, and they kind of just, just put the ball in from really close, knowing that, that they really couldn't miss from close up. Or they went so far away from the basket that if they missed, even if they missed, they wouldn't be judged because they missed. They went so far away that, oh, well, I'll just throw it. And if it goes in, it goes in. If it misses, no one will be able to say, how did you miss from there? Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Because it would involve, if they were to go in a middle distance and take a shot that they maybe could score or could miss, that would involve making themselves vulnerable. Because someone on the sidelines could make a snide comment. Someone could judge them for their performance. And so they just don't take the shot. But David embraces vulnerability. He refuses Saul's armor. He says, I can't go out in these. He doesn't want to put, put on the armor because although it would increase his defense, it would, it would limit his speed and his skill. I think risk and faith involves putting ourselves in a position where we're exposed to attack. I wonder what you'd think. I'll go up here so you can see. What you'd think I'd, I was doing if I did this. Thank goodness for that. Someone guessed it. Proposing, which is a risky thing to do. I used this illustration this morning and got in all kinds of trouble for making references about my girlfriend, but I'm not going to do that tonight. I haven't done it. Ignore that. Scrap that. But think of asking someone that question. I mean, in some cases, it's riskier than in other situations, isn't it? But you're asking a question, and actually, you're, you're making yourself vulnerable. Because although... It could be an amazing elation, kind of amazing. They said yes. Actually, there's, there's a chance that they could say no. Think of the rejection. Think of the fear. You're giving the other person power to accept or reject you. That is vulnerability. And David, David literally walks into the firing line. He says, okay, I'll go. With the responsibility of a nation, if he loses, he doesn't just die. He dies and all of his nation have become servants to the Philistines. Goliath looked over and saw David. And because he wasn't wearing any armor, he saw him as he was. Just a boy. Glowing with health and handsome. The Bible tells us that he despised him. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Which I think is quite funny in the heat of the moment. I think Goliath, he doesn't get a good rep, does he? But actually, I think he's surprisingly funny, for given the seriousness of the situation. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? It's quite witty, I think, but... I love David's courage as he approaches Goliath. He, he embraces vulnerability, but, but he, I love this. He says, um, he steps forward from the ranks. And this might be one of my favorite sentences in the whole Bible. He says to Goliath... I'm going to strike you down and cut off your head. How about that? Boom. Just going to do that. Just want to forewarn you for when it actually happens. That's what I'm going to do to you. Just going to let you know. He embraces vulnerability. He allows himself to be known. He celebrates it. He says, yeah, I am small. Yeah, I am a little boy. Yeah, you should beat me. But in the name of the Lord, I'm going to strike you down and cut off your head. For his glory, not for my own. 
proving once and for all that vulnerability isn't just for girls. David isn't acting independently. He's relying on the Lord. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. David takes a step of faith and depends on God. See, the issue for many of us, I think, is that we hold independence, the idea of being independent, too highly or too tightly. I don't know what it's been like for you. When I, when I left home for the first time, when I flew the nest, when I was out on my own two feet, when I became independent, there was this idea that that's what you had to do. You had to become independent. You were your kind of own person now, and you, you had to do this for yourself. Which meant, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm not going to ask for help. I'm going to go on my own. I'm not going to show weakness because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to really be known by others. And we can so easily be the same with God. So often, my own competency, the things that I can do in my strength, the skills that I have, can limit what God might want to do through me. Because why would I risk? Why would I step out of my comfort zone when I can live quite happily within it? We're in danger of becoming invulnerable, independent. It's not biblical. How often do we actually put ourselves in a position where if God doesn't come through, we're going to fall flat on our faces? How about that as a challenge to us? How often do we put ourselves in that position? That's risk. And I hate vulnerability. It's one of those funny things. Everybody loves it when someone else is vulnerable with you. But the idea of being vulnerable with somebody else is a horrible idea, isn't it? Maybe that's just me. But I hate it because it requires accepting and revealing to others, choosing to reveal to others that you don't have it all together. Why would you do that? Embracing your weakness. Just as David did when he matched himself up against Goliath. He celebrates his weakness. He says, it's not about me. God receives glory because of my weakness. It's because of my brokenness. It's because of my limitations. It's through those things that God is glorified. Because it can't have been me. David can't have killed Goliath. It must have been God. David's example would challenge us to take off our armor and allow ourselves to be seen as we are. That he would use us as we are. In our worst moments, not just on our good days. David is the savior of Israel. And, and just to switch for a moment, look at the example of risk from the life of Christ. Jesus, who took a step of faith to the cross, who came out of his comfort zone into a place of deep dependence on the Father. Jesus, who embraced vulnerability, Jesus who defied expectation. What kind of king is this? Jesus, who did it all for the Father's glory. And then when he, when he was leaving, Jesus said this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I wonder what's your next step of faith?
What does it look like for you to take risk? What does it look like for you, just as David did, to step forward from the ranks of the Israelite camp and say, I'll go fight him. I'll go. Let me pray for us.